back to this. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's, um, let's have a word of prayer, okay? Father, we just thank you for your word. We just pray that you would open um, this unique part of the book of Romans to us this morning and give us uh, the grace to apply it to our own lives, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 16, and um, we're in the really exciting part of the letter to the Romans, which is the greetings, the hi there part. And I really love these parts of the Bible because uh, it's, it's really the flesh and the blood of the New Testament epistles. It's a very tiny but fascinating glimpse into the life of the church as it existed in the first century in the days of the apostles. That's what you get out of this part. You know, when you're reading the Bible, don't skip over things like the greetings. Some of you know I was a history major in college, and um, so a, a section like this brings out the detective uh, in me because every word is a potential source of insight and understanding into the time and into the nature of the church as it existed in the first century. In the apostolic era, and that's important because it was an apostolically run church, so you know it had the right foundation. Um, so come with me as we look uh, for clues about the early church in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16. I'm just going to read the section, then we'll start breaking it apart a little bit. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodion, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophania and Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon. I love that name, Phlegon. If only I had one more child to name. <laughs> Phlegon Wilson. Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas and the brethren with them, greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. The first thing you notice as a detective looking at this passage is the diversity that's represented uh, in the church here in Rome. Jew and Gentile are intermingled freely in this list. Sometimes, as in verse 6 and verse 11, the reference is to my kinsmen, which would be uh, fellow Jews, as Paul would be speaking of. And some of the names, like Mary in verse 6, are thoroughly Jewish names. That's not a name that would have been anybody that wasn't Jewish. Many of the names are very much pagan-type names, not only Greek names, like verse 14, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, and Philologus, but Roman names as well, Urbanus and Junius and... Ampliatus. So the unity existing in Christ between these diverse cultures, Jewish, Greek, and Roman, um, and these, these different people groups was a very real thing. Unity and diversity. 
So that's a great lesson right there. One notices right away how many women are on this list. Indeed, most intriguing of all, I think, is the first gal mentioned, Phoebe. Uh, verse 1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Now, the greetings part actually begins in verse 3. This is not a greeting. This is a commendation, right? Phoebe's being commended, not greeted. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church at Sincrea. That word servant is the word diakonos, which is, we get our word what? Deacon from that. So she is probably, uh, if he's referring to an office, a deaconess at this particular church. Although the New Testament forbids to women the role of a teaching shepherd or elder, not because of sexism or anything like that, but just because of the created order of God's design, women were very involved in ministry in the early church, very involved in all kinds of levels. And that there were deaconesses is well attested by texts like this in the New Testament and plenty of early church history references to deaconesses. In fact, um, there's a famous letter from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan where he describes having tortured to death two deaconesses to find out what Christianity was all about. So they were martyrs as well. That was in the early second century. So women were very active in the service of Christ. And um, now think about Phoebe. Why is Paul commending her? Well, she's the one coming from him to them, right? She is his emissary. And that means Phoebe is carrying the letter that we've been studying for the last year. So the greatest theological work of the New Testament was entrusted into the care of a woman to take it from Corinth to Rome, a deaconess. She's also called a prostatus in verse 2, which means she's a helper, a helper. She is a helper of many and of myself as well, Paul says. So she's a deaconess. She's a helper. Those are her qualities. She's a super trustworthy deaconess, I'm sure. She must have been for Paul to give the letter to her known for her graciousness, her aid, her hospitality. In addition to Phoebe, we have other women mentioned individually. Mary in verse 6, uh, Persis in verse 12. Also mentioned, other individual mentioned women. Some women are mentioned here as wives. Verse 15, Philologus is the man and Julia together, so she's probably a husband and wife. There's a single woman mentioned with her brother in verse 15, Nereus and his sister. And then there's probably two sisters mentioned in verse 12, Trophena and Trophosa. You know how people like to name their kids in sort of a little rhymy way. And um, those girls uh, have, are probably sisters. But certainly one of the most remarkable women listed here is, is Prisca, uh, or Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. Paul seems to call her Prisca for short. You could describe this couple as Paul's best friends in the New Testament. Um, they were fellow Jews. Also, they shared his line of work. Paul was a tent maker. All Pharisees had, a, um, had to have a marketable skill. They weren't just preachers and religionists. They had to have a marketable skill. Paul was a tent maker. So were Aquila and Priscilla. So they, they not only had a lot in common spiritually, but they, they had the same trade. So they kind of gravitated to each other. Um, and that comes real handy on the mission field. When you uh, run low on funds, you can stop and make some tents <laughs> and sell them and keep your ministry going. Aquila and Priscilla had Paul's passion for Christ and missions as well. They were constant and true friends of his, supportive, with Paul doing all the right things. Um, you know, Paul had some conflicts with people at times in the New Testament. Uh, Peter, uh, they had a little run-in. And he had a run-in with uh, his, a really good friend, uh, um, Barnabas. And, um, but these guys, they seem like 
they were just buds. I mean, tight as peas in pot. You know, I mean, they're really close. Uh, you always get the sense that they were constant and true friends, supportive with Paul and doing all the right things when Paul was away. Uh, they met in Corinth, in Greece, under interesting historical circumstances. In A.D. 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. They had to all leave Rome. And there were a lot of Jews in Rome, so it would have been many thousands of people. Why did he do that? Well, Suetonius, a Roman historian, says that he was upset with the Jews because there was rioting, and this is the way Suetonius said it, at the instigation of Crestus. And that just makes historians' little lights just flicker and flutter because of Crestus. That's awfully close to another word we know, right? Christ. And so we, we're wondering, um, historians wonder if, because we know Paul's experience when he was traveling and preaching the gospel in synagogues around Asia Minor and in Greece, it would always cause riots, right? It ended up in all kinds of trouble. And so if the same thing was happening, the gospel was being preached in Rome and the Jews were rioting because of the word of Christus or Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection, then that was actually the cause in AD 49 of uh, Jews being expelled from Rome. Very likely possibility, very strong possibility that's the case. That means the gospel was in Rome and causing trouble by A.D. 49. Now, Christ died and rose again in A.D. 33. That's less than 20 years. The gospel made it from, you know, Palestine to the heart of the Roman Empire. I mean, that, that's rapid expansion. So that's very interesting. Um, very likely possibility. Anyway, Aquila and Priscilla did have to leave Rome. Uh, they went to Corinth and they met Paul there. And they hit it off. Paul stayed in their home. For a while, they were working on tents and building the church there in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned six times in the New Testament. Three times uh, separate incidents are mentioned in Acts chapter 18 by Luke. Paul mentions them here in Romans, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. And it's interesting that Phoebe, the gal that carried the letter, is from Sincrea. Because Sincrea is a city that's literally next door. It's like Acton and Aguadulce, next door to um, Corinth. In fact, that's the port. Corinth sort of sits a little bit in uh, from the, the, the seacoast there. It's, it is a sailor's town, but um, Sincrea is really the port part, and uh, they're right next door to each other. In fact, um, in Acts chapter 18, it says that Pr Priscilla and Aquila left Corinth with Paul. They passed through Sincrea, and they took a ship over to Asia Minor to work with Paul at Ephesus. So they likely knew Phoebe as well. So all these little connections are sort of coming together here in terms of the way the gospel went out. In Acts 18, 19, it says Paul left the couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, in Ephesus, no doubt to add strength to the church there, while he traveled back to Syria. So they were the kind of people he could leave at a place and say, you know, they could use some more weight in Ephesus. So you guys come with me from Corinth. You guys can stop at Ephesus, stay there. I'm going to go back to uh, Syria and Palestine. And you guys can kind of help take care of the church and keep it going there in Ephesus. And that's what they did. And it's in Ephesus that we have the story of Apollos who was a mighty, itinerant preacher of the gospel. And he comes to Ephesus while Aquila and Prisca are there. And he's preaching the gospel and going at it. And he was from Alexandria, which is in North Africa. And Luke says he was mighty in the scriptures. But this is what Luke says happened. This is Acts chapter 18, verse 25. This man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So very able people, Aquila and Priscilla were, to take a man like this, to have the tact and the grace to correct a man that was mighty in the scriptures, a powerful speaker, and have him accept their instruction. That also speaks well of Apollos. They're always spoken of as a team. It never says Aquila. It never says Priscilla. It's always Aquila and Priscilla. Or, often, Priscilla and Aquila. She's mentioned first a couple of times, which is very unusual for a couple mentioned in the New Testament. I wouldn't make too much of that, but it's interesting. It bears witness, most likely, to Priscilla's uh, excellent qualities and as a godly Christian woman, and maybe even she was a little more outgoing of the two and uh, a little more energetic or something. I don't know. So, ministering with Paul in Corinth, correcting and gently admonishing the great in Ephesus, and in Romans 16.5, hosting a home church in the capital, Rome itself. So God's kingdom is advancing by leaps and bounds because of people like this, who are just folks. They're just people, wonderful people, but everyday people. Aquila and Priscilla's hosting a church in their home points to another interesting feature of the New Testament era Christianity, house churches. The church met in homes for the first two centuries of Christianity. There was an amazing lack of interest in putting up buildings. I mean, really kind of amazing. No church buildings. In one sense, it's understandable because at first there was a lack of proper resources, of course, and, but after, after Nero, and there was a need to keep kind of a low profile because persecutions broke out every now and then, but persecution was kind of sporadic. It wasn't always that common, and it was usually in different places, not all, in, all, all at the same time. So the reality is church buildings and ceremony, ritual, and ornate decor and fancy rituals and all that is neither here nor there. That's just not what Christianity is about. That's not what the church is about. It's a clear break with Judaism because it would have been very natural for the church to take the synagogue system because Christianity started Jewish and to build little churches like they built little synagogues everywhere, places to meet. But for generations, Christians did not feel the need for their own buildings. Now, there's an interesting account of the martyrdom of Justin Martyr, a church father from the third century who was put to death Sorry, you got his name, Justin Martyr. They don't just call you that when you're a kid. Some aspects of his trial were recorded and preserved for posterity, and particularly his interview with the Roman prefect. And this is what was said. The prefect said to Justin Martyr, where do you Christians assemble? Justin Martyr said, we do not, as you suppose, meet in one place. For our God, the God of the Christians, fills heaven and earth, and therefore he is present anywhere. We can meet any place and have communion and fellowship with him. When I go to Rome, I have a home where I go and remain. And those Christians who desire to hear me teach come into that home. So Christianity has never been about buildings and ornate structures and fancy things like that. That's not the core. That's not, uh, it's not important. Jesus told a Samaritan woman, you might remember in John 4, that an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father how? In spirit and in truth, right? For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those are important words and adopted wholeheartedly by the early Christian church. Not that buildings are bad. Uh, they have practical benefits for ministry, but they're not needed. And they're not in any way central 
to Christian practice. So, we've seen a church that is culturally, racially diverse, a church where women are fully acknowledged and appreciated, a church that stresses simplicity in worship. And when I read these verses, verse 1 through 16 here, what really leaps out to me, in addition to all of that, is the obvious love that binds the church together. The endearing expressions that Paul uses here have a warm and wholesome and familial quality to them. Look how often he uses the term beloved. Did you notice that when we read through there? Verse 5, Epinetus, my beloved. Tan agapetan, my, my beloved. Epinetus was the first convert to Christ from Asia, which is a big deal, and Paul knew him a long time. Verse 8, Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. His name means amplified or enlarged. Very common slave name. He may have been a slave. Verse 9, Stachys. We don't know anything about him. My beloved, but a Greek name. And verse 12 is interesting because he mentions Persis. It's a woman's name. It's a Persian woman's name. A woman from Persia. That's kind of what the name means. But notice uh, when Paul speaks of men, he says, my beloved. Now, if you've got a good translation, it'll pick this up. If you've got a wimpy translation, it will but when he talks about Persis, he changes the personal pronoun, drops it. To the guys, he says, my beloved, my beloved. But to Persis, he says, the beloved, not my beloved. Like, well, what's the big deal about that? I think he's just being sharp. He's just being wise because she's a woman. Men in uh, ministry need to be a little extra careful in expressing their affection for the ladies, right? And uh, had Paul called Persis, my beloved, and he called her that, you know that somewhere in the 20th century, some pseudo-scholar would write a book on Paul's affair with a Persian kitten, right? I mean, wouldn't that be true? And it would have been part of a PBS special on early Christianity and probably get a full hour. There'd probably be a full hour episode on, on the History Channel or an A&E. Highly speculative biographies on Persis, the woman Paul loved, right? So uh, it's the beloved, not my beloved. He's too wise to leave himself open like that. So after Persis, we come to Rufus, verse 13, and his mother. Let's look at that verse. He says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now this is another one of those ones that just gets you kind of all interested. First of all, in the church family aspect, this dear lady was a mother to Paul. He considered her a mother, which is the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be in the church genuine affection. He's not throwing out these pious, bland, saccharine religious phrases. You know, when he wrote to Timothy and he said, appeal to an older man as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and to the younger women as sisters in all purity, that's exactly what he meant. It's exactly what he meant. It's family. Regard the church as family. That's Christianity as Paul lived it. He not only teaches that to Timothy to regard him that way, but you can see it in the greetings. That that's how he felt. Great Rufus and his mother and mine. She's a mother to me, he's saying. These people genuinely cared about each other and looked out for each other, even risked their lives for each other. 2 Timothy 3 has a description of people in the last days. And Paul said, realize this, that in the last days... Difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, 
revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, he says. Now, I have known professing Christians who match this description far more than they match a description of somebody that's being led by the Spirit in their life. It's frightening. The days are coming upon us when people act entirely for themselves and their hearts are simply cold to these kind of relationships that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 16 that he's experiencing in his own life. They're just cold to friendship and family, the familial bonds. Even though they hold to a form of godliness, he says, pious words, but Christ isn't present. Churchianity, no love. God spare us from such a heart, amen? Cultivate love by the Spirit of Christ for one another in your heart. Care about other people. Weep with those who weep. Remember when we talked about that in Romans? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Feel. Feel something for others. And choose them over yourself. Let's see, where were we? Oh yeah, Rufus. Rufus. Can't be sure. We can't be sure. But Rufus, in verse 13, an interesting character. What's he called? The eclecton, the chosen in the Lord. Why is he chosen? What's special about Rufus? Why does he call him that? Well, there's something about Rufus. It leads a lot of Bible scholars to think that calling him the electron might mean that he's the Rufus. You say, who's the Rufus? <laughs> I, I can see it in some of your faces. Who's the Rufus? You don't know who the Rufus is? Well, he's one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene? <laughs> Starting to sound familiar? No. Most scholars believe that Mark, the gospel writer, wrote his short gospel for the Roman mind. It's designed for Roman ears. There is some evidence that it was written for Rome itself, the, the city, the churches in the imperial capital. One of those really small, subtle reasons that the gospel should be seen as history and not legend or some kind of fabrication are the historical and even personal markers that are carefully set in them by the writers of the gospel. Those are the subtle reasons. There's big reasons to believe they're historical, but these are the kind of cool little reasons. Look at Mark chapter 15 real quick. We'll come back to Romans in a minute. And you've got to wonder, when you're telling the whole life story of Christ, and you've only got 16 chapters to do it, and so many verses, part of a scroll, why you would drop in little personal details. It's because the personal details authenticate the historical reality of it all. You remember that Jesus was brutally scourged by the Roman soldiers. Worse than scourged, actually, because they heaped a lot of physical abuse on him beyond that of the typical Roman scourging where they took the flagellum, that was the whip with multiple cords and lead balls and broken glass and bits of bone sewn into the thongs of the, the thing, so when they flailed you, they'd rip the skin off you and cut your muscles apart. Beyond that, you know, they did the crown of thorns, they punched him and uh, they beat him with a reed and all of that, so they, they really took him 
beyond the usual beating. And the beating was so severe that Jesus could not carry his own cross, remember, to, to, to Calvary. So the Romans exercised their right to compel labor. That's the whole thing about going the extra mile. When Jesus said, somebody compels you to go one mile, go an extra mile. Remember when he said that? The Romans had a right to compel anyone to carry a burden for them one mile. That was their right as conquerors. They could pick a non-Roman citizen to some doofus off the street and say, hey, carry my bags for a mile. Okay, yes, sir. You had to do it. So, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it says, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now that's just really interesting. Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So here's Mark writing a letter, his gospel maybe in the 50s or something, A.D. And he says, he bothers to say, by the way, Simon of Cyrene, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. So Alexander and Rufus were known people. And this was their dad. Simon is the man who bore Jesus' cross, an eyewitness of his suffering. And it's fascinating because he was just passing by. You'd love to know the whole story, right? Because these people, his sons, apparently, are in the church. And his wife, in Rome, many years later, many years later. And if it's the same, his son Rufus is living in Rome, and the church, obviously well-known people for Mark to make his comment. And Simon's wife, Rufus's mother there as well. And she was like a mother to the Apostle Paul. I just find that fascinating. And he was a, a chosen man. Well, I think part of the chosen man is just who he was by virtue of his link to the events of Christ's death. So all these names, they're, they're real people. They're dedicated to God's work in this world. Not pastors and evangelists, mostly. Some of them might have been. But saints, just people serving the Lord. Phoebe, a helper of many. Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, Mary, who worked hard for you, Andronicus and Junius, outstanding among the apostles, Urbanus, verse 9, our fellow worker, Apellus, verse 10, approved in Christ, the sisters, Trephena and Trephosa, their names mean delicate and dainty. <laughs> Great, delicate, and dainty. They're maybe upper-class gals. What does he say about them? Workers, workers in the Lord. Persis, worked hard in the Lord. God's work done by God's people. Now, is it fair for me to ask, if Paul is writing you a letter, and if he wrote Act and Faith Bible Church a letter and just wanted to greet everybody, and he had one short sentence to attach to your name, what do you think he'd say? I mean, is that a fair question? Something I think it's good to think about. Just take a moment maybe for a little honest reflection. What do you think he would say? He'd call me Gimpy. <laughs> but remember, these Roman 16 folks are just people like us. Married and single, young and old, male and female, with exactly the same human nature and temptations that all of us face. And yet, all these wonderful comments. We should respect the people on this list, but don't plasticize them. Don't make them into some kind of plastic saints because that's not what they are. They're just folks. They have the same sorts of problems we do, maybe more. I mean, let's face it, we live in America and they lived in the Roman Empire. So 
They don't have modern medicine. They don't have a, they have a, they don't have a democratic government. They don't have a, a lot of protections legally, unless they're citizens. But they did love one another with a, a world-changing, spirit-led, transforming kind of love for one another. And they did work hard, not just in making tents in order to live, but in God's work, workers in the Lord. He says that very specifically. So what would your sentence be? I don't mean your sentence of condemnation. I mean your string of words. What would you say? What would your sentence be? What would you like it to be? Let's take the second one. <laughs> what would you like it to be? Make that a goal and, and work towards that in your own life. You know, there's great power behind any effort you make to be more fruitful for the Lord, to serve Christ better, to shift priorities, to think creatively about doing things differently. And with, with discipline on how you can impact the world for our Lord Jesus Christ, you can make a big, big difference. How did the first century Christians change the world? You can get it just from this list of hello there's. Unity and diversity. Simplicity of worship. Love and hard work. That's how Christians change the world. Now let me ask you one last question. As you look at our world, does it need a change? <laughs> does it need world-changing people out there? Yeah. So let's do it. In honor of September 11th, let's roll, as uh, Mr. Beamer said on that plane. Because there's lots to do. And there's lots of room to grow. So let's make that a, a real passion of our hearts. See, you can learn a lot from little greetings, can't you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just for the power of it, the beauty of it, the simplicity of it. It be fun to be a fly on the wall in the church at Rome and, and just watch how people dealt with their problems and their issues. Some of them slaves, and yet loving you, honoring you, living for you, changing the world for you. We pray that you'd give us the grace to be like that, powerful. Powerful not in ourselves, but in the strength that you provide. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.